coming up next on RCR. It's the dialogue with Dewey DeBoer from politics. So we sort of uh, have a, a crossroads, as it were, here in New Zealand. To power. You know, when, when good men stand up, the spines of others are stiffened. And culture. Through times like this, you know, through adversity, you can see who you can trust, who, who you can rely on. You see who's standing with you. And all of these things are very, very valuable. Tune in on Fridays right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. It is an honour and a great privilege to be here on RCR. I am your host, Dewey De Boer, and this is The Dialogue, where we explore politics, power and culture. When I was first asked to come on RCR, I thought... That's great, wonderful. Perhaps they want me to guest host a show, uh, try things out. And they said, no, 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 no. We would like you to host your own show. Summer series where we would cover a number of shows on history, whether it's New Zealand history or English history, European history, classical music, and interviews with various people around the world, perhaps who are also involved in patriotic or nationalist movements. Please do give me your feedback throughout the show by texting us on 2057. And you can also email feedback to inbox at realitycheck.radio. In the next show, I will dedicate a section responding to your comments. I am very much looking forward to reading it once I get off the air. Today, we have public policy professional William McGimsey to talk about mass migration, demographics, and the changes taking place that are sometimes called the Great Replacement. He'll explain what he means by that when he joins us later. I have several pieces of classical music selected for you, composers from Italy, New Zealand, Armenia, and Germany from the early 18th century, or rather I should say the 17th century, right through to the middle of the 20th century. We also have a panel of some long-time contributors to Right Minds, which those of you who are familiar with me and my work will know that was the think tank that I founded in late 20. 
16. It seems like such a long time ago now. And these men who were joining me are my fellow soldiers in the culture war. We hope to discuss the geopolitical situation in the wake of last week's interview by Tucker Carlson of Russian President Vladimir Putin, and especially the impact of global economic changes on New Zealand as the Russo-China alliance grows. We've also lost the number of Kiwi soldiers in this war in Ukraine, so it's not entirely a far away problem. Thanks for tuning in to the Dialogue with Dewa DeBoer. You can catch the Dialogue replays on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. I turned 29 years old earlier this week. And in the past, it has been remarked that I'm a little young to be listening to talk radio, uh, let alone hosting it. But I listened to a lot of radio growing up. The Ability for streaming audio over the internet was very new in the early 2000s. My dad listened to a lot of American radio, primarily Rush Limbaugh, who was the self-proclaimed king of talk radio and also a number of classical music stations. I particularly remember him listening to Radio Cincinnati, which is somewhere in Ohio. It was quite novel to be able to listen to all of that in the early 2000s. My mum would also listen to Newstalk ZB in the morning on the way to school in the car. When Leighton Smith was on, the radio would go on. Uh, when Leighton Smith was not on, the radio would go off. Uh, Rush Limbaugh was a conservative pundit and a, a big inspiration for me growing up. He was the most listened to man in America during his long reign on the airwaves over the many decades that he ran his show, the Excellence in Broadcasting Network, as it was known. Uh, he received the Presidential Medal of Honor from President Trump. Uh, sorry, it was a Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Trump shortly before his death from cancer a few years ago. He did pioneering work on talk radio, starting in uh, AM radio, uh, maybe some of the listeners here will know what AM radio is. I don't. I've never, never listened to AM radio. But there was uh, FM radio. Uh, it was popular when I was very young. And obviously, he switched similarly to internet streaming, podcasting, and even video streaming. Rush Limbaugh was always on the cutting edge. So I'm very honored to be hosting a, a radio show in this tradition, in the conservative tradition. He also had a guest host, a Canadian by the name of Mark Stein. I think many of the audience will probably be familiar with Mark Stein from his later work. So I loved his sense of humor on immigration, the American border problem, which is older than, than I am. Obviously, that's still much in the news. And hopefully in a future show, we'll talk to some people from Texas on you know, what, what is happening on the American border. And... Uh, he also, as is Mark Stein, wrote for newspapers in the UK and Canada. Uh, later on, he worked for GB News, which was founded by Nigel Farage. Uh, Nigel Farage was in New Zealand a few years ago. I actually went to hear him speak. It was fantastic. Uh, but unfortunately, Mark Stein was fired from GB News, uh, effectively fired. They altered his contract to make him liable for Ofcom. That's the UK broadcasting standards, fining GB News if Mark Stein violated the broadcasting standards. 
And the violations they were accusing him of was over airing uh, in information uh, about the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, he was interviewing people who had suffered vaccine injuries, people who had claimed to have suffered vaccine injuries. He simply allowed their stories to be heard, allowed people to see them on the TV. And for that, he was targeted by the British establishment who did not want those stories to be aired on TV. And unfortunately, his employer folded. Uh, they didn't stand by him and he was let go. He really was the only anchor, and I believe I'm safe in saying this, the only TV anchor in the Western world who was giving a voice to those who were injured by the uh, COVID vaccines. This also coincided with his own decline in health. He's had several heart attacks. Unfortunately, I see that uh, he's currently confined to a wheelchair, but he is still writing commentary on his website. He is still doing uh, effectively internet radio of sorts, doing podcasts and, and such things. He was also very much a vocal critic of climate change. I remember doing a school science project when I was in high school. My dad would drive me around and we were looking at weather stations around New Zealand. This was a big thing that Anthony Watts from the What's Up With That blog, which was the, the number one climate blog in the world, uh, had talked about, Mark Stein had talked about this, that the people who were recording the temperatures were placing weather stations in urban areas, obviously picking up the development of what we call a urban heat island. So as areas get more developed, as more houses are built, more people move to an area, uh, more asphalt is laid down, more concrete, uh, the weather stations would naturally pick up an increase in temperature. So I went around you know, with my with my dad because I couldn't drive. We'd listen to Rush Limbaugh. We'd listen to Mike Stein. Uh, we take photographs of these, uh, and my photographs, my work was featured on Anthony Watts's blog. I did win first place at my school science fair, but then the uh, the regional Manukau science fair suddenly uh, no interest in my science project. I called it local warming. That was my little pun at the time. Uh, I have good memories of all of that. Unfortunately, Mark Stein, who did win a case in Canada against the hockey stick guy, Michael Mann, was his name, Dr. Michael Mann, he uh, had created uh, this data showing a famous hockey stick that the temperature had been low for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, and then suddenly the temperature drastically increased in the last hundred years due to industrialization. Mark Stein claimed that he had tortured and molested the data to create uh, this this so-called hockey stick. When Mark Stein was sued by Dr. Mann in Canada, he managed to, Stein managed to win the case because Mann wouldn't bring the uh, data in, into court to prove you know, his hockey stick. However, Stein was then sued in the District of Columbia in the United States, in D.C., those of you familiar with politics and demographics in the United States will know this is the central of the Washington establishment, the American left wing. Uh, that is their heartland. And Dr. Mann got a, a jury of very left wing people to convict Mark Stein of defamation. He was only awarded $1 in damages. But then just now, as of uh, this past week, the damages also include $1 million in punitive damages. So he's being punished as a journalist, as a commentator, being punished for his opposition to climate change, being a vocal critic of it. 
this is particularly concerning for freedom of speech in America. Obviously, everyone who knows their legal system in America, defamation is very, very hard in America. It's a different situation here in New Zealand. Very, very rare to have it employed against you uh, as the way that it happened to Mark Stein. The whole thing, of course, is one big farce. And it's very sad to see Mark Stein subjected to this, but certainly he has been a very big inspiration to me. From all of that, I got involved with Right Minds in 2016, was the election of Donald Trump to the US presidency. And they had these global marches, these uh, women against Trump, even in New Zealand. What are they marching against the US president for? Well, of course, it's all connected. And then in the past few elections, I've been involved with the New Conservatives. I ran for parliament twice, uh, or rather stood for parliament twice. Uh, I got involved with the BFD, uh, the excellent team there, especially the editor, Juana Atkins, wonderful people to work with. And I write as a columnist there. You can read my columns on Saturday mornings if you are a member, of course. And now I'm involved with RCR, which is such a privilege and of course, RCR is funded by donations and memberships, and these are absolutely worth it. The RCR Bytes program is wonderful. Uh, you get a letter in your inbox with an aggregation of news and links, things that have happened in the last day. Sometimes people do ask me, is there a good New Zealand uh, aggregator of news? And well, that's RCR Bytes for RCR members. I've also selected a very appropriate uh, or a several appropriate pieces of classical music for you this morning. We have Antonio Vivaldi's Summer, concerto number two in G minor from his Four Seasons violin concertos. Uh, yes, that is clever because Reality Check Radio has asked me to do a summer series of shows. There can be no better way of opening these shows with Vivaldi's Summer. If I'm clever... If your feedback of my show is good, and if I enjoy doing this, we may have more shows. We may be able to get through all of the four seasons eventually in the next year. Antonio Vivaldi was born in Venice in 1678. Uh, and like most music from the Baroque period, it is considered to be among the best ever composed in all of history. This performance that you are about to hear is by the Netherlands Bach Society, with Schunske Sato leading the violins. Speaking of Bach, we will have something by him right at the end of the show, so stay tuned for the next three hours. We will finish off with a bit of Bach. For now, enjoy Vivaldi's summer, and we will be back with public policy professional William McGimpsey after the break. You're listening to The Dialogue on Reality Check Radio with Dewa de Boer, where we explore politics, power, and culture. I'm joined by William McGimpsey, who is a public policy professional, lobbyist, and Twitter personality. He's been involved in the field of public policy in New Zealand for around 20 years, having worked for several government and non-government agencies. He created the Twitter account the Zeitgeist during the Ardern government in order to bring attention to that government's disregard for Kiwis' rights. He now posts under his own name. Hello, William, and welcome to the show. Yeah, g'day, Diva. Nice to be joining you. So your Twitter account is the subject of my first question, really. I saw you post as the Zeitgeist over the last few years, and I always did wonder 
what you meant by that specifically? Was it something clever you picked out of a hat or you had uh, something a bit more subtle in mind? No, no. I mean, I'm just a, a sort of uh, one of my hobbies is reading uh, philosophy. And uh, zeitgeist is a term used in uh, German philosophy um, by people like Hegel, I think, might have used the term, as well as Heidegger. And it just means something like the spirit of the times. And so all I really intended by using that name was to uh, give people an idea of what was going on using my Twitter account, because in my view, the mainstream media is a little bit biased and uh, people could do with uh, getting a different perspective. And so my idea was to show people and give them an idea of the spirit of the times uh, from my perspective. And why did you decide to switch over from being an anonymous commentator to posting under your real name? What was the the thought process that that underwent went to that decision? Yeah, well, I'm still not sure whether it was a wise decision. Um, <laughs> uh, but the change of government had a lot to do with it. Um, so I, I was very critical of the Ardern government, and I think uh, deservedly so. So really, I mean, I had uh, sort of iterations of my Twitter account for a while there, uh, but I never took it really seriously. But uh, under the Ardern government, I kept, became uh, quite concerned about what was going on with the COVID pandemic, the vaccine mandates, uh, became concerned what was going on with co-governance and uh, some of the problems uh, or the attempt to pass hate speech laws and some other problems that were happening with free speech. So I really wanted to use my Twitter account to bring attention to some of those problems. And is there any particular reason why free speech especially is something that's very important to you? Why did it stand out from uh, many of the other human rights? As you say on your Twitter, you are a human rights advocate. Uh, and so more broadly, what do you mean by these human rights? Where do they come from? And why is free speech one of the more important ones to you? Well, human rights are just moral norms, ideas of right and wrong, minimum standards that we should have. And, uh, you know, different cultures have different ideas of what those moral norms should be. But the, the difference between civilization and barbarism is that there should be some idea of uh, normative order. So, I mean, the human rights movement draws on, you know, a variety of different perspectives. It tries to get agreement between different cultures between different religions, between different philosophical perspectives about what the basic standards of normative order should be. And these have been encoded into uh, international treaties that most countries have signed up to, including the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and um, there's many more. And it's also made its way into uh, domestic law in most countries now, I'd say. I don't know that for sure, but a lot of countries, New Zealand has human rights laws, the UK has human rights laws, most modern democracies would have some sort of human rights law. And free speech is uh, one of the most important ones. And I guess the reason that free speech is one of the most important ones is that you need to use free speech in order to defend the other rights. If you take free speech away, it's very difficult for people to bring attention to other human rights violations and also to organise uh, and agitate to defend the rights that have been taken away. So in some ways, I mean, some people argue because of that, free speech is uh, the first among human rights. The right to life is obviously very important, but uh, free speech is also very important. Uh, it's the first amendment to the US Constitution, so obviously they thought it was quite important. But yeah, apart from just a rights-based approach, it's, it's also important, I think, for the proper functioning of democracy. 
democracy is based on the idea of consent of the governed. And uh, if people don't have free speech, it's very difficult for public opinion to, you know, uh, move through ordinary conversation and debate over time towards a reasonable or towards um, some sort of consensus. The public opinion is reflected in people's voting decisions, which is then reflected in the laws that governments pass. And if there's some sort of systematic warp introduced into public opinion by banning certain types of conversations, that's going to have an effect on people's voting decisions and the policies that are passed. So, so that, in my mind at least, poses problems for the idea of consent of the government, uh, consent of the governed. And it sort of reverses the idea of um, who ought to be in charge, the people or the government. Is it the people who ought to be electing the government or is it the government banning conversations about certain topics so that uh, certain parts of the policy agenda can't be voted away? So it's important for democracy. Um, it's also just important for um, uh, you know, individual self-expression, uh, for being yourself. If you don't have free speech, you've, you're, you always have to walk around on eggshells and be sort of guarded. You can never really say what you think. And, you know, that's just a sort of uncomfortable situation that people don't want to live out in their everyday life. Um, so those are a few reasons I think free speech are important. I've got a very topical example for you from the past uh, week or so. The Green Party is going to be electing a new co-leader at some point. One of the people standing for this role is Chloe Schwarbrick. Uh, now, she has been known as fairly vocal in terms of wanting hate speech laws and, and being fairly critical of hate speech. But she is in hot water over a chant that she led at a protest. And the chant is, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. And in interviews recently, she's argued that this is not anti-Semitic. It's not, well, she, they're not using the term hate speech, but it's effectively what the argument is, that there's a Jewish community that's offended by this, that considers this to be hateful. And her argument is actually the same argument that you're making and that she wants to call out human rights violations that she, she sees, and she wants to be able to use controversial speech to be able to call out what she sees as, as an injustice. Uh, yet at the same time, obviously, we know that she has called for hate speech laws many times. Do you think there's going to be some kind of uh, reckoning, some kind of change on her behalf, or is this just a totally schizophrenic in the sense of she wants to have her cake and eat it too? She doesn't. She she she's willing to decide what hate speech means by herself, uh, and yet she's confident enough that she will be in control of what's going to be defined as hate speech, rather than being on the receiving end of it. Yeah, well, call me a cynic, but I think it's the latter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the range of things that. Um, people can potentially be offended by and find hateful is, I mean, it could potentially be infinite, couldn't it? And the the variability in that is huge. The, the things that offend me are obviously very different than the, the things that offend Chloe Swarbrick. So you can't, you can't really make law on uh, a subjective basis like hate, not a reasonable or fair law. All it's really going to do is to ensconce into uh, pair a particular person's uh, view and if Chloe was in charge, I'm sure that's what she would do. She would she would make it hate speech to criticise the things that she holds dear. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be total free speech to, to champion the causes that uh, she thinks are important and that other people find hateful. Um, exactly. I think all of the listeners here would agree that Chloe should have the right to free speech and that it's important for her to be able to speak without uh, being 
legal, you know, legally liable for hate speech on on the issues that she cares about. Yet, uh, I, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see some kind of awakening from her on on you know, how incoherent her beliefs are. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> Now, the main reason uh, why I've invited you on the show here is that you've been quite vocal about immigration in New Zealand, specifically the issue of mass migration. The statistics that we saw last year were, I believe, the highest uh, number of immigrants that the country has received in a 12-month period. Uh, the, the raw numbers were basically a quarter of a million people, 250,000. Is that correct? Yeah. So if I just consult my crib notes here, I can give you the rundown of the numbers. So to the, the year ending November 2023, um, 249,500 migrant arrivals, 122,095 departures uh, for a net gain of 127,409. So for a country of 5 million, 250,000 almost arrivals, this is 5% of the population. Huge. Uh, it's, it's just huge. And over the last 20 years, the immigration into New Zealand has been running at about 100,000 people per year, 100,000 people per year for 20 years, mm-hmm. which is, you know, that's uh, roughly between 1% to 2% a net gain per annum. Now, it's a bit complicated because some people come in and other people leave, and oftentimes the people who come in are the ones who leave again uh, in short notice, it's difficult it, to to say how much of your population uh, is immigrant population and how much is growing uh, based off these numbers. But a lot of countries uh, record the number of people in the country who are born outside the country, and that can be a useful number. But yeah, I mean, the numbers are just very large, and that's yeah, going to. You wanted to say something? Yeah, I, I was going to say. I believe the. Uh, usually the foreign-born population in New Zealand decided to being about a third or so born overseas, which includes anyone who's born overseas, including myself here. And, of course, we have many uh, uh, English immigrants, many New Zealanders even born overseas. So I don't know, I don't know what that total – you know, that, that total number is obviously just simply people born overseas. Yeah, yeah. Which is probably quite high for, for uh, many Western countries, uh, but obviously it's on the, it's on the climb in, in many parts of the world that are receiving immigrants. And obviously uh, that number is going to be very low on uh, parts of the world, which are you know, ex- I was say exporting or, or you know, have, a, have a case of immigration with a lot of people leaving. Yeah, it's very high in Australia. So Australia is a country of uh, 26 million people approximately at the moment. And they've had roughly 500 new migrants per year every year for the last 10 years. Um, 30% of Australia's population were born overseas as of 2022. 30%. It's a huge number. Mm-hmm. Same as um, same as New Zealand, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, the UK is a pop- country of 67 million people. Their new arrivals have been 500,000 or above uh, since 2004. And uh, they're up over a million in the last couple of years. So... Uh, like Australia and New Zealand, that's running at above 1% of the population per year. Uh, the US is a bit hard to work out because so much of their immigration is illegal immigration, and they don't have very good statistics for that. But Yeah, it's a lot easier when you're an island nation to keep track of how many people are coming in. <laughs> it's a little bit more difficult than uh, swimming over the Rio Grande as it is in America. So Yeah. 
Canada is a similar story. A population of 39 million, uh, 200,000 to 500,000 people per year over the last 20 years. Uh, and then in Europe, we've, we're obviously all familiar with the, the stories that are coming out of there of the large uh, Muslim population that's immigrated in over the last few years. So this, this immigration, it causes uh, problems. It causes both mm-hmm. um, economic and uh, social problems. And it, the way this links to free speech is it's very hard to talk about these problems because as soon as you do, out come the accusations of you know xenophobia and racism and all the rest of it. And even if you make purely economic arguments. But the, I mean, the economic argument against the large-scale immigration we've seen is simply that our housing stocks our infrastructure stocks and our public services are all stretched and they can't deal with us. And this is something that's never really discussed in the public debate around immigration, but every immigrant who comes to New Zealand demands those things immediately. They need housing. They need you know infrastructure connected to the housing pipes and roads, and they need public services like healthcare and education almost immediately. But it takes time for those things to, uh, for the markets for those things to adjust and for them to be supplied. It takes time to build a house. It takes time not just for the physical building, but for the getting the consent uh, and for all those things. It takes time to expand your public services. It takes time to develop your infrastructure. And what this means is that there's just there's natural limits to the amount of new immigrants a population of 5 million can uh, cater to and can provide for year on year. And if you exceed that natural limit, uh, as probably as we've been doing mm-hmm. for the last... 20 years, you're going to end up with housing crisis and infrastructure deficits and stretched public services. And that would be the case even if we had the best supply-side solutions to these problems imaginable. No one ever talks about immigration as the cause of these problems. They only ever talk about, in the housing crisis, for example, the the solution is always uh, supply. We've got to free up more supply. Build more. We need to build more houses. Uh, Yeah, but even if we had the best... Yeah, even if we had the best supply side in the world, what I'm saying is there's still a natural limit. And you can see this with a simple thought experiment. Like, let's imagine we have the best supply side housing market in the world and 10 million people come here next year. Are we going to house them all? What about 20 million? What about 100 million? Obviously, there's some sort of limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, no, and no one ever discusses it. And even if you are seeing a net gain of 100,000 people in a year, being optimistic and saying those are all larger families, you're still needing tens of thousands, uh, maybe up to 50,000 houses per year that you're building purely to cater to immigration, not factoring in growing families here in New Zealand, uh, expanding population here in New Zealand. The argument you mentioned around economics is, in fact, one that we saw during the election campaign. So I've got a quote here from Christopher Luxon. uh, During the campaign last year said, and I quote, Immigration's always got to be linked to our economic agenda, and our economic agenda says we need people. I mean, here's the deal. Essentially, New Zealand stopped replacing itself in 2016. I encourage all of you to go out there, have more babies if you wish. That would be helpful. And the implication here, of course, is either you will have children and replace yourself because the economic agenda of the National Party says the population has to grow. And if we don't naturally grow population. We don't have enough children in New Zealand. The fertility rate is not high enough, which at this point it's not. It's uh, well below replacement level, I believe about 1.5 children per woman. The 
National Party are saying, we will use immigration to make sure the population keeps growing. Yeah, well, is that really solving the problem? I mean, if uh, if you have an endangered species that's not replacing itself, no one suggests, oh, well, we'll, we'll bring in this other species, this other type of you know, animal to replace them. Obviously, if a, a people in a culture are and not replacing themselves, that's a public policy problem and you should address the real problem rather than trying to cover it over by bringing in more people from elsewhere. So we need to ask ourselves, uh, why are people not having children anymore? This is something that people managed even when times were very tough, uh, even in the Stone Age. Um, there was, you know, life was much harder. It's much harder to gather food, much harder to keep warm, Um People still manage to have children. Why are we not doing it now? There's some sort of failure in our society and we need to narrow in on exactly what it is and fix that rather than just bringing in more people. Because what sort of future are you really offering to new people if you bring them in and as a result of living in your society, they can no longer reproduce themselves either. This is a civilization as death trap. And, And this actually often happens. For instance, I myself was involved very much in arguing against certain types of immigration, specifically saying, well, these people have very high birth rates and they'll end up replacing population and and they'll grow and become a a big threat. The example that you mentioned earlier on as well was Muslim immigration to Europe. Many people have argued over a long period of time saying, well, this could be very dangerous in the long term. And in some countries in Europe, it has become a very big issue for their domestic policy. But when you look at the numbers of children they're having, that's decreased rapidly. Uh, the, the birth rates of many of these immigrants plummets to the same level as the native population. So clearly, whatever it is that's suppressing birth rates has got less to do with purely the economic situation uh, in, in, in the country, because you know that 100 years ago, when everyone was living in mud huts, they were having 10 kids. Uh, and so something something big has changed. And I don't think even the experts, the so-called experts on this issue, uh, which we do have some that appear on New Zealand in the mainstream media. Uh, I believe Paul Spoonley at the moment is, is one of these who's talking about immigration and population replacement and demographic change. Uh, he's talking about you know, income problems and so on, but not really dealing with maybe a deeper issue that's getting in the way of people having children. Obviously, you do see certain demographics have higher birth rates, and there, there seems to be no real assessment to wondering, okay, is this maybe a cultural thing that's been broken. Uh, as a good example in New Zealand, Maori have a much higher birth rate and they have a far stronger cultural identity as well. Yet nobody in the mainstream seems to be willing to explore this issue that people's uh, cultural and religious identity is actually far more important than many of these material solutions they talk about. Well, I think there's something to that. I mean, I, I saw Paul Spoonley on the AM show the other day and I think... I don't think what he said was completely wrong. I think there's um, there's a legitimate argument that, I mean, I think the factors he mentioned are, were uh, female educational attainment, female employment. Those were the two main ones. I think there may have been a couple of others. He mentioned basically money, but, you know. Yeah, well, well, I think, I mean, and so the basic argument there that an economist would make, and I think it's valid, is that if you've got a good job and you're earning lots of money, then you have to give up more of that to have a child. And so the trade-off for a professional woman as well, I mean, should I keep plugging away at my career where I'm doing quite well and earn lots of money and climb the corporate ladder? Or should I put that all on pause and risk my career to have children? And so it just creates a set of incentives, which mean that, you know, professional woman or working woman uh, may, on average, be less likely to want to 
take time out of the workforce to have children. So I think there is something to that, but there's also something to what you're saying. There's a deeper problem, a sort of spiritual malaise, a mm-hmm. crisis of uh, identity or meaning in, in the modern world. And I think, you know, the modern world is better than the, the pre-modern world in probably most ways. So I wouldn't want to go back. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going back either. Uh, I know there's... But, I know but what I would say is in the pre-modern world, they didn't have a crisis of meaning like we have. The basic questions of why we were here, why we're here, what we're here to do, who's in charge, namely God, they were all answered for you. And everyone knew that from when they were born right throughout their lives. And we don't have that anymore. That, those questions are open to us modern people. We have to figure out the answers to them for ourselves. And so the, the question is, uh, is that situation working for us? And it's uh, debatable in my mind whether it is. And obviously, yeah, if everybody is simply treated as an economic unit through a matter of public policy, then you're never going to solve any of these problems because you just want to make economic units more productive. You want to have more economic units and it'll, it's a death spiral, right? That's essentially the public policy situation has got itself into a point where it can't naturally recover, uh, except the only solution it has right now is to bring in more immigrants, which at some point creates more problems. Um, Yeah. I think there is something dehumanizing about considering human beings in purely an economic sense and considering, you know, the the meaning and purpose or the the main thing about human existence to be going to work, earning money, buying a house, providing for your children. I mean, those are all important things, but uh, in the past, we've uh, set our sights maybe a little bit higher or been a bit more idealistic or and more religious. And um, maybe there was something to that. You, you might be right about that. Now, we've been using the terms mass migration and we're talking about replacement migration, which is getting awfully and dangerously close to a term called the great replacement. And I've noticed that you are one of the few people who actually talks about this in terms of a great replacement, the, the scary the scary term. And I remember many years ago, I once you know, made the mistake of being interviewed by a journalist, uh, which I much regret, but you know, you live and learn. And I was asked a similar question about oh, what do I think about the great replacement? And I said, well, I, I don't really talk about the great replacement. What does that, what does it mean? I just, I talk, I, you know, I'm concerned about mass migration as, as a problem. So why do you mention it specifically and uh, what really is it and why is it considered such a scary thing? Well, I mean, I just personally don't like the idea of certain things being off limits to discussion. Uh, and so whenever I you know, run into taboos around things you can't talk about, I like to ch- sort of challenge them. And that's a lot of what I do with my Twitter account is sort of try to challenge these taboos around things that we can't say. So hopefully in my own small way, I'm sort of helping to bulldoze away for other people to come in behind me and have these conversations. Um, like what we're doing now. But I mean, what the Great Replacement really is, is it's a name for the massive immigration-driven demographic changes that are happening in most majority white countries. In most historically European countries, we're seeing a process where the white population was well above 90% in the 1950s and is in freefall. And if unchecked, whites will become a minority in their own countries in the coming decades. So that's basically what I mean by the Great Replacement. Now, I've talked about white people and European people there simply because they're the ones that this is happening to predominantly. 
Um, but there's no reason why a similar situation couldn't happen mm-hmm. in other countries and why it would also be problematic if it happened there. Yeah, precisely. I actually saw a, saw a quote today from uh, Napoleon Bonaparte where he said he cared about whites because he was white. Uh, that was so for hundreds of years, people have used this term to basically look, you care most about the people who are closest to you. You care most about your own people. But it doesn't mean that this these problems can't affect uh, other people as well in other countries and other nations. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I'm a fan of the late uh, English philosopher, Sir Roger Scruton. And he said, you know, the conservative instinct starts from people loving what they see around them and valuing it and seeking to protect it. And that's basically the starting point for my political thinking as well. You know, we've got a good thing going here in New Zealand and in the West, mm-hmm. you know, the West. And it's it's worth protecting, you know. Now, a common argument from liberals, and I guess why they've created the bogeyman of the great replacement is means that you're scary is that they see people seeking their own nationalism their own ethnic affinity mm-hmm. uh, even arguing that any country has a right to have an ethnic majority of its own people they argue that is, uh, is something that's very dangerous because it's what caused world war ii and so by speaking against mass migration by speaking against the great replacement you're effectively putting yourself out there as as being a threat because you could cause another world war, you could cause another genocide somehow, you could cause nationalism of the bad sort to rise again. Yeah. Well, in many ways, Hitler wasn't a nationalist, actually. He was an imperialist because he sought to conquer other countries. There is no inherent reason why uh, nationalism has to be violent, and most nationalisms have not really been violent in the past. So I think we, we all li- we're living in the shadow of uh, World War II and Adolf Hitler, and it was a huge, you know, historic event, and it's left sort of a, a lasting mark on the psychology of, if not all the world's people, certainly the people of the Western world. And I'm not sure all the correct conclusions have been drawn as a result of that. You know, the uh, the great totalitarianisms of the 20th century, of them there was Nazism and uh, communism, right? A lot of people died because of communism too, and it wasn't necessarily a nationalistic sort of ideology. So I don't don't think we can blame nationalism necessarily for the deaths. And communism, as you've just mentioned, is hardly considered to be as dirty of a word, at least among the so-called respectable classes of society. uh, Whether it's the mainstream media or politicians and, and so on, academia, being called a communist was actually not particularly harmful, as it may be uh, if you're called a nationalist, that may harm your academic prospects. No, well, it shows you that, that men, um, popular sort of elite opinion, although it poses as, you know, trying to be uh, for peace and against violence, and uh, that's not really what's going on. They have their own ideas about what's good, and the people who they support have committed a, a lot of genocides of their own. So uh, I don't think we need to take our lead from them necessarily. I mean, who, who I take my lead from in terms of nationalism is a uh, Israeli political philosopher called Yoram Hazoni, who wrote a book, um, The Virtue of Nationalism, which I think is a very good book. It's a great book, yeah. I should, and, I should review it on the show sometime. Yeah, and, and he, he defines nationalism simply as, you know, it's a political philosophy of that the world is governed better when it's governed by a set of uh, sovereign independent nations rather than other systems such as a one world government or empires or something of that sort.
And so that's basically my philosophy. If you've just tuned into the show, you're listening to The Dialogue on Reality Check Radio with Diwa de Boer, where we explore politics, power, and culture. And right now we are talking with William McGimsey, who's a public policy professional, and we've discussed the effects of mass migration, uh, freedom of speech versus hate speech. We've also talked a little bit about the uh, the great replacement as a term for uh, the effects of mass migration, and also the uh, we were just discussing the virtues of nationalism. So, on, on to stay roughly on the same subject. Um, do we have many historical precedents for what happens at very high levels of immigration? Uh, or are we in uncharted waters? Um, well, there's nothing exactly like what is happening now. And uh, that should really be give pause to the people who are championing the policy, right? <laughs> is, this, is this evidence-based policy? Uh, I think not. Uh, I think what's going on here is on behalf of some of the people championing it, an idealistic crusade, you know, uh, which maybe arguably grew out of, uh, you know, John Lennon and the hippie movement, trying to, you know, unite the world, bring us all together. That's part of what's driving it. But that's not evidence-based policy. That, that's pure idealism. And pure idealism like that can be dangerous, particularly when it uh, sort of, uh, demonizes those who oppose it and refuses to listen to arguments for the bad things that it might be causing. And that's where we are with that. But I think another thing that's driving this is just the demand of big businesses for a, a large pool of cheap labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're sort of stuck in this uh, pincer where we've got people on the left uh, wanting this in part because they think they can assemble, you know, uh, demographic majorities to win elections. A, a lot of the left-wing parties in Western countries now, they organise themselves by like a coalition of the fringes. And they think the more of these sort of minority groups they can bring in, the bigger they can make their coalition of the fringes and the more they can get their way. Uh, so that's part of what's driving it. And then on the right, you've got this desire for cheap labour a desire to turn a country just into a pure economic zone, a market. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we're in this situation where both sides want this and it's happening. But is it good for ordinary people? Is it in the interests of the ordinary people in these countries? not so sure that it is. You've mentioned that both sides of the aisle support this very much. But sometimes when they're in opposition, they don't. So it's clearly, as you've mentioned, there is a populist undercurrent that is opposed to this, the people themselves don't like it. Whenever it's whenever there's polling done on the da- on it, and I, I don't know the figures exactly for New Zealand, but I know that in America, for instance, it's 70% opposed to their immigration policies. It's probably very similar to New Zealand. Um, but when parties are in opposition, like the Labour Party has been very much anti-immigration, you know, to the point where it was mocked by the National Party for being anti-immigration. Uh, and that was only maybe... I don't know, seven, eight years ago, perhaps even less. Even six years ago, the National Party was opposed to immigration. Right? They uh, even ran a petition against the United Nations Migration Compact. And so when they're in opposition, there seems to be some nods to this. But getting policy out of it is very, very difficult. Uh, you know, we have, We've discussed the problems. What are the solutions? Even parties uh, in New Zealand who have argued against immigration, New Zealand First is perhaps a good example, 
doesn't seem to be trying to implement policies to, to reduce immigration. And, and, and I'm not just talking as a one-off, I'm talking a structural reform that would stay in place long-term. There's no real movement towards a structural change in our immigration policy. And what do you think? Is it possible to, to have that change happen? Is the electorate going to be able to mobilise in some way to make that happen? Well, I think it is. I mean, I think as the problems associated with it become more and more apparent as they are, you're seeing the populist pushback become larger and larger and more powerful when that being reflected in voting decisions. I think I was browsing Twitter today and I saw that uh, polling puts Marine Le Pen as the, she would win an election mm-hmm. was held today in France. And it's the same thing all over Europe and it's the same thing happening in Anglosphere countries. Donald Trump won in 2016 based largely on the fact that he was willing to talk about immigration and promise to do something about it when, when no one else was willing to even mention it. And he's likely going to win again, we don't know for sure, precisely because he's going to run on that issue. That's one of the biggest issues. And, you know, Nigel Farage is making big strides in the UK because he's willing to talk about the immigration issue where not very many other people are. So I think part of the problem here is that there's a sort of structural problem with pluralistic democracies. In pluralistic democracies, uh, minority groups are much more motivated to organise to defend their interests, right? Because they, they have to really elbow their way in to get their way on things that are really important to them. And for a long time, the majority has just been sort of complacent. But now that the majority is being uh, threatened by these immigration policies, I think they're starting to organise across Western countries, you know, through uh, organising various types of lobby groups and other organisations, getting active on social media, voting in politicians and parties who are willing to talk about and do something about these issues. So, I mean, as the problem grows, the reaction will grow too. And hopefully uh, that'll result in more of these politicians being elected and doing something about it. I think you can already see it's happening, Joey. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I can. Don't, don't give up hope. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not giving up hope. I'm, I'm just, I'm here to ask the questions and facilitate these conversations. And, and yeah, I, I liked what you were saying there about the, a sort of a power in a pluralistic democracy like ours lying largely with vocal minorities. I think few people really understand that the silent majority doesn't get anywhere. It doesn't, doesn't get what it wants. It's the vocal minority that gets what it wants. And so being able to put together a vocal minority within the majority is, is really a, a, a path to actual political power and change. That's right. And I think, yeah, and like I say, the more these problems Uh, manifest themselves, the the more motivated people are going to be to build organizations that uh, can project power in a a peaceful, democratic way within our democracies and elect these sorts of politicians and get these policies passed. And we've been talking mostly about ethnic uh, ethnic majorities, especially Europeans in in our context. But obviously, for immigrants, this becomes an important issue too. Uh, I'm an immigrant here myself. I know very many other immigrants who really care about this issue because you move to a country and then you, you want the country to succeed and you don't want it to, to, to fail and fall over and, and decay and, and decline. So this is an issue that does or has always really spoken to me because I don't want our immigration policy to be the downfall of the country. And really, you know, as we've mentioned earlier, obviously, there is a, a natural small amount of immigration, a reasonable amount of immigration, which a country can absorb well over time and people can assimilate and be given a chance to assimilate and if you take that away uh, you undermine the, the the very thing that makes this this society stable 
that makes people want to be part of it. Yeah, well, part of the thing that people like and value about their countries is the, the national identity and the culture of the country itself. Different countries have different cultures and different ways of life, and different people enjoy different things about different countries and different peoples and different ways of life. And so because you value these things, you want to preserve them, and that all seems perfectly natural and perfectly good to me. And one of the one of the problems that gets in the way of this is the accusations of racism and, you know, nativism and xenophobia that are thrown at people who express these very basic and widely shared and perfectly natural and perfectly good and perfectly healthy opinions that they love their country, they love their their culture and their way of life, they value it and they want to preserve it. If you say that, you're a racist. But there's nothing bad about that. That That is actually the foundation of all positive civic engagement and political engagement in society. It's a love of country and I wish to do something about it and protect it. Mm-hmm. And we've got people in the media, people in academia, people in the government who say that's an evil motivation. That's racism. Well, they're wrong. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to say it. They are wrong. Absolutely. I've got one last topic here for you, and that is something that's fairly unique to New Zealand, and that is what part do Maori play in this? Uh, what effect does you know, mass migration have on them and on their future and their goals, which currently are a subject of much debate in in, in the news and various issues that you know they argue that the uh, David Seymour in particular has it out for them. But obviously, there are other problems that are not being talked about so much, which is this issue. And I saw last week Shane Jones being interviewed saying that he's horrified by mass migration. That's the first time I've at least heard a New Zealand politician say this, which was Shane Jones from New Zealand first saying that he's horrified by mass migration. And he also mentioned that there's no hapu that wants to stand with him on this issue. And he says he wants to work with them on this issue and they're not interested. At the same time, they argue that it's colonization that's harmed them, yet somehow they don't make a connection between mass migration as being another form of colonization. Is this just a blind spot for them, or do you think there's something more to it? No, well, I mean, I think the part of the calculation there is that they think that uh, they can ally with these ethnic minorities once they come into the country and will increase their power against the the majority of the population. Um, I'm not sure that that's correct. I mean, in a democracy, ultimately what matters is numbers. And as your numbers decline, as large numbers of immigrants come in, you're going to find it more and more difficult to uh, elect uh, politicians and get policies across the line that reflect your interests and that defend your uh, values uh, as a people. And not only is it harder just in terms of the raw numbers, but the number of different minority interests that are competing to get their preferences recognised in policy increases. And so... I mean, I think Shane Jones is right. He said something along the lines of, uh, if Maori think they're marginalised now, imagine how they're going to feel in uh, 2040 when there's 7 million uh, people in New Zealand. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But there's another angle to this as well. This is one that I uh, saw brought up by, by Paul Spoonley in his recent media appearances, where he mentioned that Maori have a much younger demographic face. They are going to increase as a share of the population to about 20% or so by then, at least the, the number of people who identify uh, in that way. 
uh, which is actually important. A lot of people say, well, the, you know, you don't have enough DNA, and, and but it's actually the way that people identify themselves becomes very important in a political measurement. So you do, they, they are demographically strong and young in terms of, of having, having high birth rates, having an increasing population. They're going to want to demand more of, of their own ethnic interests as well as that happens. And of course, people who may be worried about a growing Maori ethnic interest in New Zealand may also now not like our arguments against mass migration, because obviously that would also strengthen uh, Maori interests going into the future. Do you, do you see this having a big, well, I mean, I think it must have a big impact on the future. Is this something people should be worried about or is it a case of us simply waiting to see what happens? No, I mean, I, I'm of the view that uh, immigration, high rates of immigration will ultimately disempower rather than impair Maori mm -hmm. for the reasons that we've discussed. <laughs> yeah, all right. Even if they are slightly larger percentage of the population. A, a large, yeah, but a, a lot of that reason people are identifying as Maori is because of intermarriage and stuff like that. Uh, and so it's not like the amount of Maori genes in the population are really increasing greatly. Mm -hmm. It's just the, the, the spread is increasing. So the, the number of people who could potentially identify as Maori is being spread more and more thinly <laughs> yeah, yeah. Among people, so uh, yeah, we do have uh, examples. I, I can actually go and back to my own uh, ethnic heritage here. Um, people often wonder why my name is so funny, and it's because it's actually a Frisian name. And the Frisians are an ethnic minority in in the Netherlands. They're actually split between two countries. A percentage of Frisians live in the north of the Netherlands, and a percentage live in the west of of Germany along the coast. But the original people who were the Frisi largely died out. Their genes are almost non-existent. You know, there's a small percentage of, of that original group. But the identity was picked up by the people who moved into the area, like I'm talking a thousand years ago. So it's possible for populations to basically you know, adopt an identity, even though the genetic code becomes very diluted. That identity can still remain very strong, like a thousand years later in, in my own case. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's 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 correct. I mean, the the trappings remain, but the the substance is <laughs> not well, there. The, obviously, over a long time scales, uh, so anything can happen, right? So we we can't plan we can't plan a thousand years ahead. Obviously. All right. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to tell the audience? Uh, you know, a key thing you'd like them to remember as we draw to a close here. Uh, no, just follow me on Twitter. Um, if you're interested in uh, free speech, if you're interested in uh, immigration, if you're interested in the right to uh, self-determination, which is the right of the people to govern themselves, if you're interested in defending other human rights, follow me on Twitter and uh, follow the conversation, uh, join in. And I think that participating in uh, social media is something that everyone can do. And it's, it is something that if enough people do, it can have an effect on the national political conversation. And I think that we're seeing that it is having an effect on the national political conversation. So I would just encourage everyone at home to join in, take part in the political debate, and uh, don't let the people trying to censor you put you off. Uh, challenge them, because uh, if you do it enough, it actually starts being fun. Well, thank you very much, uh, people. You can find... William McGimsey on Twitter, just search for his name or the Zeitgeist, which is his his handle, and you'll find him and you will enjoy his content. It'll make you think. It certainly has made me think in the last few years. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, we both wish 
all people the best in uh, in you know determining uh, the future of their people especially i'm you know, very very interested and very much looking forward to how new zealand develops with the identity of new zealanders and also maori identity and uh, their autonomy which you know, they find very very important uh, in the same way that new zealanders are finding their own autonomy and, and their own identity as a people increasingly important we've just gone over the issue of mass migration here We've covered the issues of uh, nationalism, the Great Replacement, uh, ethnic identity, and freedom of speech. That's a lot of ground that we've covered. I hope people have really enjoyed it. And uh, we will be back after the break with more. Thank you. Taking part in conversations and discussions to help find resolutions for the issues of today. This is The Dialogue with Dewa DeBoer. Welcome back. It was great to talk with William McGimsey, the zeitgeist on Twitter. Uh, if you do have a Twitter account, it's absolutely worth following him. Just get in touch with me if you struggle to find him, but I don't think you will. I'm thinking about something that economist Michael Rodell has often said, and perhaps we should have him on the show in the future as well, but he we talk about a government policy around immigration that he called Big New Zealand. And there was the idea that these government, uh, or mainly the politicians really, but I think he may also have been referring to bureaucrats, wanted to grow the New Zealand population very, very large, really increase the size and density of the country, believing they could then hit economies of scale. And he sees this as obviously a failed policy a terrible, terrible policy that's left New Zealand very poor. But obviously, nobody asks you about this. Let me know what you think our population should be. Is 5 million good enough? 7 million? 10 million? How dense should New Zealand get? How much green space should we keep? All of these are questions that you can think about and perhaps in the face of demographic changes in New Zealand, there may be policies that we could be pursuing to maintain the population. Perhaps even a shrinking population is not entirely a bad thing. And, or maybe increasing the population is something you see as something very beneficial. So please do let me know your thoughts on that. A subject that we also didn't really get to in much detail was the cultural component to assimilation. Obviously, not all immigrants are the same. Some politicians have mentioned value tests to in avoid incompatibilities. And even governments in the past and perhaps today have also uh, favored certain countries and ethnic groups that they believe would be more easily absorbed, more easily assimilated, uh, and would fit in much more smoothly. Obviously, we all know that problems can arise with immigration, especially if it is not carefully handled. I didn't have a chance to give this quote from Renau Camus, who coined this term that William talked about. And Camus said recently in an interview, The Great Replacement is neither a theory nor a concept. It is a name for what is happening. The change of people and of civilization. And with that thought, I would like to move on to the next part of the show and give you a review. 
Not a book review in this case, but a review of a place. Over the summer holidays, I spent some time with the family in Katikati near Tarana. There's a campground there by the name of Sapphire Springs. We found it a few years ago. It's a wonderful place with cool creeks, bushwalks, and hot pools. At the time, the COVID passes were in place, and this was the only campground that we could find that would not discriminate against us. We had a really great time there, and we decided to come back, and so we did. But that's not the main subject of my review. While we were there, we went into Tarana, and there was a place there that I've wanted to go ever since I found out it existed. And I've written this review and published it on my blog, Right Minds NZ, as well. The place that we visited was the Lion and Tusk Museum of the Rhodesian Services Association. It's a small museum tucked away in a unit of the Port of Tauranga at Mount Manganui and maintained by veterans and descendants of the Rhodesian Bush War. Their project extends to preserving all of Rhodesian military history from the late 19th century onwards. Rhodesia was a British military colony established by Cecil Rhodes' British South Africa Company under a royal charter from Queen Victoria. Their opening hours are between 10am and 3pm from Thursday onwards. We arrived in the afternoon about 2pm in the summer holidays in early January. We had about an hour to explore which was enough time, but you could really spend longer there. There's a lot of detail, even an extensive library, and the staff, of course, are very knowledgeable. The entry fees are affordable. Uh, I believe we paid $15 an adult. And given the immense cost of maintaining such a project is reasonable, especially that mainly the project is maintained through donations and the work of volunteers. I also believe it's the only museum of this kind in the world. The reason it ended up in New Zealand is that we became one of the primary places of refuge for the Rhodesian diaspora. Rhodesia is a piece of military history that most people will be somewhat familiar with. In the post-war era, British policy had changed to only allow independence for colonies if they implemented universal suffrage. Rhodesia, after witnessing their neighbours descend into genocide and anarchy, decided to maintain the vote for landowners only and declared unilateral independence with the Queen as head of state, against her wishes. In the 1960s and 70s, a communist uprising aided by the so-called international community resulted in the ethnic cleansing of the Rhodesian people from their homeland. The only countries that offered real assistance were South Africa and Israel. The Rhodesians struggled under embargoes that prevented them from winning the war. The full story is recounted in The Great Betrayal by Ian Smith. And while that book is basically not available anywhere, hard to get, uh, I know some friends who have a copy, uh, there is a, an ebook available of his revision that he expanded called Bitter Harvest. So it is possible for me to review this book on the show. So if you are interested in the subject, do let me know. I can review The Great Betrayal slash The Bitter Harvest by Ian Smith. The targeted murder of white farmers that are common today in South Africa started in Zimbabwe under Mugabe's communist regime. Many white Rhodesians fled to New Zealand after Mugabe assumed power and southern Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. 
Former Prime Minister Ian Smith remained in his country and home until two years before his death in 2007. His farm was confiscated from his descendants by the government in 2012. It's estimated that over 90% of Rhodesian people either fled or were forcefully removed from their land. However, the decline has been halted in recent years as policies restricting white land ownership in Zimbabwe are rolled back. Of all the 20th century's genocidal atrocity, this one has been the most erased from the history books. Thankfully, interest in Rhodesia has been revived in right-wing circles, both as a warning of what our enemies have in store for our own countries, but also as a tale of bravery and prolonged counterinsurgency with limited means. It was in many ways an anachronistic country, maintained by the finest gentlemen of an empire that had been hollowed out by World War II. The Rhodesians fought a physical long defeat, while conservatives today fight a cultural long defeat. The true challenge for young right-wingers in this day and age is to break free of the paradigm of the long defeat. The centerpiece of the Lion and Tusk Museum in Taronga is a helicopter, the French-designed Alouette 3. I don't mean a miniature version or a knockoff. This is the real deal. The tail section has been removed and hangs from the roof. It's a massive contraption. This type of light helicopter was used to rapidly transport and deploy infantry and special forces at long ranges as part of an aggressive counterinsurgency tactic known as Fire Force. The kids loved it. My son especially enjoyed the side-mounted machine gun while the girls pretended to pilot. You dangle your legs over the edge as you fire the gun. You can really imagine how that would have been such a cool job back in the day. They have tapes of war footage too, much of it available on the internet archives and YouTube. But a museum with the artifacts of the war around you is a best way to experience this. The history displays go back to some of the early pioneer skirmishes, the contribution of Rhodesians to the British Empire's defense in World War II, and finally their struggle in the Bush War. There's poetry written by soldiers about their fallen comrades, alongside stories of bravery and heroism. Several displays are interactable, including a Browning machine gun and a mortar emplacement on the second floor. There are plenty of non-military exhibits and displays too, as various parts of Rhodesian life have ended up in this museum. You feel a real sense of awe and reverence as you move about the museum, and often moments of sadness as you read the plaques commemorating those who died. Much care has been taken to simply present the history as it was, and in the words of those who experienced it. Had Rhodesia not been betrayed to communism, it would undoubtedly be the most prosperous country in Africa today. Even at the time of his death in 2007, Ian Smith's reputation was so solid, he undoubtedly would have won an overwhelming majority of black votes in Zimbabwe if there had still been free elections. Like many of history's greatest leaders, his reputation has only grown since his death. Lest we forget. That was my review of the Lion and Tusk Museum in Taronga. I highly recommend you visit it if you are ever in the area. Now for our second piece of classical music, we go to the 20th century and we contemplate a theme of national identity. Born in Whanganui in 1915, Douglas Lilburn was New Zealand's foremost classical composer. In 1940, to commemorate the centennial signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, he composed the Overture Aotearoa. 
while studying under Vaughan Williams in London. While the name Aotearoa is politically contentious today, at the time it was used by many romantics who sought to establish a sense of national identity for New Zealand, and that is how it became universally accepted as the Maori name for New Zealand. This overture was the first of three pieces with a focus on national identity that Lilburn composed. It's played here by the Christchurch Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Benjamin Northey in 2019. Enjoy this defining piece of New Zealand music composition. We will be back after the break with a panel of my friends from Right Minds NZ to discuss the Tucker Putin interview. Now, the Overture Aotearoa. You're listening to The Dialogue on Reality Check Radio with Diwa de Boer, where we explore politics, power, and culture. I'm joined by Kaiden and Origin, who are contributors to the Right Minds Project, and they're some of the people who I sit around the virtual fireplace with to talk politics, and they are also both good friends of mine. A big story last week was the two-hour-long interview with Tucker Carlson and Vladimir Putin, and I've brought them on here to talk about that and their thoughts on it. Welcome to the show, Kaiden. Uh, good day. It's a momentous occasion. It's good to be here. And welcome to the show, Origin. Good day, Reality Check Radio listeners and Diwa and Kaiden. Nice to be here. So my first thoughts on the interview, which I found very, very interesting, especially as someone who doesn't worry too much about the border disputes on the other side of the world. My main real interest has always been in a solution that stops the killing and the loss of life. Uh, and unfortunately, we seem to be very much in a worst case situation with a, a, a long war, high casualties on both sides, but especially on, on the Ukrainian side. And Vladimir Putin seemed fairly comfortable with his position in the war. I think with his negotiating position, he uh, was you know, happy happy to come to the table effectively, uh, but also happy to carry on with the war to achieve uh, what he sees to be his objectives. So, Kaiden, what was your first impression of this interview? It's good to hear someone so intelligent for once. You know, our world leaders don't have nearly the same grasp of, of history. And, um, well, it, you don't even need to really understand that the history, he, he just, he uses his grasp of history to justify his own national sovereignty and you know he has confidence in his own civilization and kind of you don't see that anymore from from our, our own leaders are too busy with you know lgbt rights and diversity and so on to justify the continuation of their own nations do you think president biden in america could handle an interview like that no i mean he can't even remember when his son died so you know it, I don't have much hope there. It's uh, absolutely, yeah, just a, a very unserious situation we find ourselves in in the West at the moment. Yeah, clown world. <laughs> it's a yeah, clown world moment. And Origin, what uh, were your impressions? Yes, I, I agree with Kaiden. I think uh, Putin is a man who's deep in history. Um, but we just touched on diversity before, and a lot of... Putin's interview sort of uh, trying to capture the spirit 
of the Russian people. He talked about something that was just deeper and broader than cultural lines. And for me, that was the most interesting thing because although, you know, Tucker Carlson is essentially a, a paleocon, he's definitely not of the same understanding um, in terms of the the spiritual depths of the Russian people that, that sort of Putin was trying to communicate. So for me, that was that was more interesting than 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 the history lesson. It was something that I've touched on earlier on in the show in my interview with William McGimsey was a sort of a, a cultural malaise, a, a, a complete lack of meaning in the West. And you're listening to Vladimir Putin being interviewed. He seems to have absolutely none of that. No, no spiritual malaise, no lack of meaning. He knows exactly what he wants. He knows exactly what he wants for his nation, and he's willing to do absolutely anything to achieve it. Indeed, they still they still look in terms of national interest, and yeah, they know what their people are. They know who they are. Therefore, they can clearly define who is friend and who is enemy at whatever point in in time. And I mean, I'll shill Clash of Civilizations by Sam Huntington. Which I suppose is somewhat mainstream in this sort of international relations audience, but on the other hand, maybe a lot of uh, listeners aren't aware of it. There's a book in response to this end of history idea of Francis Fukuyama that you know the end of history means that world will adopt a liberal democracy, and this was a, a response to that and saying that instead of the Cold War ending and you know liberal democracy winning, that the world will fracture into different civilizations and. And what really matters is ultimately who do you who who do you think you are who do you know who you are sort of the, the root question of philosophy. So I, I know that sounds a bit abstract, but Putin has a grasp of that, whereas the Americans and many of the European nations don't quite. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, they think they are. Well, we are at the end of history, and I think Putin's speech was a rejection of that and the rejection yes. of, of the notion of Western liberalism which was extremely refreshing. And he sort of spoke to a multipolar world, which I think is probably the best way forward. And I think it is evidenced uh, in the Russian people. They're united by, obviously, the Russian language, but it, the Russian language traverses many cultures throughout the former Soviet and Russian Empire territories. And they are sort of united in their common bond in that respect um, through that shared history. And uh, and for them, you know, history hasn't ended. It's a, the eternal struggle, the destiny of the of the Russian people. Yes, and you could to give a quick overview of Putin's interview, the subjects that were covered, just in case there are those in the audience who you know, haven't listened to the interview, or maybe you've only heard what's been reported in mainstream news about the interview. He spent basically the first thirty minutes giving a history of Russia. And Ukraine, he went back to uh, the ninth century. He, he, <laughs> I love the introduction. The, he, he starts talking about the ninth century, and Tucker is sort of, well, what does this have to do with with what we're doing? And what does it have to do with the invasion of Ukraine? He called it filibustering. And <laughs> just if, and so, and Putin, of course. Well, I want to have a serious conversation. We're we having a serious conversation, and then he just goes on for thirty minutes about this history. Then they talk about NATO expansion. Uh, various aspects of NATO for for 10 minutes or so, 20 minutes, they go on. They speak about the sources of the conflict, what triggered the conflict, 
Tucker asked about if a peaceful solution could be reached, how willing was Putin to negotiate. He asked him who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. He asked questions about reestablishing communications with the United States. And then, of course, about whether he thought Zelensky was actually in charge of Ukraine or the situation, or is it actually Joe Biden who's calling the shots or the people behind Joe Biden who are calling the shots. And he closed off with some questions about Elon Musk, artificial intelligence, and also uh, an imprisoned American journalist who's been imprisoned on on espionage charges. So Tucker Carlson did cover a lot of ground. Uh, He was, I think he met his match, I think, in terms of an interview. He was very much caught off guard. And you could tell they're both both very good at what they do. Now, Origin, you were referring to the world being sort of split in two as well. Uh, Putin actually referred to that, but uh, as he, he likes to talk about the world as one one head, and that the world has got a, a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere in his brain, and that yes. those hemispheres should actually be connected and work together properly. And that currently they've been disjoined. The, the brain has been split in two, which I've seen some people criticize as giving kind of a, a globalist message. Is Vladimir P- Putin a secret globalist because he talks about the need for the world to be united and interconnected? Yeah. I, I mean, people may take that reading of it. I, I think it sort of his perspective probably stems from a more pro-Russian standpoint but in a multipolar framework. And I suppose it's good to sort of talk about the origins of the multipolar theory. Um, it sort of comes about by way of Alexander Dugin, who's a, a prominent Russian political philosopher, kind of known for his controversial geopolitical theories. And he advocates for essentially what's known as an Eurasianist vision that opposes Western liberalism, essentially. And uh, in the West, at least, this man known as Alexander Dugan has been sometimes referred to as uh, Putin's brain, um, <laughs> which I think is really quite amusing. There's, that's you know it's a little bit speculative. There's no real hard evidence to say that Dugan has a direct line to uh, Vladimir Putin. But what I did find... Interesting, I, I was talking about it before, was that, and, and you mentioned it as well, you know, discussing the, the, the course of the interview, was the emphasis on the history of the Russian people and that appeal, uh, because I think essentially the, the speech itself or the interview itself was aimed directly at the Russian people. He, you know, he was giving his reasons. He was giving his reasons that, no, there wasn't a country such as Ukraine. It's a fiction they are Russian people, the Russian-speaking people, and we're we're united in one brotherly bond. You referenced obviously his view that Ukraine is a, a fiction. Now we here are fairly familiar with our history. Obviously, there is or has been have been several iterations of Ukrainian nationalism in the last two hundred years or so. Something he mentioned. In his speech, which was interesting, of course, I think is Ukrainian nationalism has been fairly dependent on German support. I was in, in World War One. You had an independent Ukraine for a short period of time. I remember reading about it in General Peter Wrangel's memoir, Always with Honor. Great book. Um, he was the last general of the White Russians who uh, led the uh, the long defeat against the the communists. He was actually offered a position in an in independent Ukraine. But he himself wrote, he said, as soon as the German money dries up, Ukraine will collapse. 
and that was that was a hundred years ago. And so strange to be sitting here in a similar situation now, where Ukrainian nationalism is largely again dependent on German and American money. But is there a place for Ukrainian nationalism? Obviously, you know we support the autonomy and independence of people, people's right to their homelands and so on. Mm. Uh, is he wrong when he is he is he actually wrong when he says that there's no Ukrainian people or argues that they shouldn't be allowed to leave the Russian sphere of influence? Well, I think you can look to, say, like Chechnya, for instance. So Chechnya is, has a lot of autonomy within the Russian state, and it has its own defined borders and jurisdictions and also uh, its own uh, languages um, preserved and, and way of life. It's an Islamic uh, jurisdiction. And they obviously there was you know the civil war during the 1990s and early 2000s, but they have reached a, a mutual agreement between them that they can quite happily coexist peacefully, and that 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 same influence is, is found throughout all the different peoples of the the Russian state. For example, like the Tatars are another quite predominant sort of minority in the Russian state, and they've been able to preserve their cultures and their traditions within the the Russian sphere. So obviously, I understand there's a difference between sovereignty and preservation of culture, but it seems to have been able to weather the storm of both, you know, Soviet Russia and obviously the post-Cold War Russia, well, both the Tatars and the Chechnyans. Mm, that's a very good point in you know seeing the the destructive nature of the Soviet system of the communist system that Russia's policy of allowing cultural autonomy is, seems to have have survived and, and mm. whether the storm of communism quite well I, I would uh, say the, I would say just as a quick note that I think the concern is not particularly Ukrainian nationalism but what Putin sees and it, it could well be a ruse of Nazism uh, ascendant and and Ukraine and people scoff at that by saying, "Well, Zelensky is ethnically Jewish," which is true, but his government is still funding Azov Battalion types who cause mm-hmm. havoc along Russian lines. Or, well, obviously, most of that has, has ended with the capture of Bakhmut. Mm-hmm. Um, something Putin actually uh, mentioned was that is exactly what Putin mentioned. Mm-hmm. Was, hang on, give me, a, give me a sec. It's it's just interesting that. That's the sort of cause for Russian, one cause that he sees for Russian aggression. And it really does stick in the sort of post-war, people want to say, academic agent comes up, came up with the term uh, boomer truth regime of post-war politics. It, not just for us. We, we aren't just affected by it with what we understand to be World War II, but so is Russia. And yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's excellent. I had a point here about that, which I may as well get into now. Uh, I had a, I coined a term while I was thinking, how do we discuss this? And I t- turned to turn the coin, uh, coin, coin to the term Godwin's War. Obviously, we have uh, Godwin's Law on the internet, which is a basically, for those who have never heard of Godwin's Law, it basically is that as the longer a conversation on the internet goes on for, the probability of Hitler being invoked reaches one. So, so effectively, you're always guaranteed to invoke Hitler at some point in a conversation because we live in this post-war era. But this particular war very much is a case of everything being Hitler. You look at Putin's justification, it's because there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine. You look at many Western arguments against fighting back, it's because, well, Putin's the next Hitler. Right? They, the term 
putler was coined as as I, I think it was intended to be serious quite early on, but it turned into a bit of a joke. But that was kind of it. The justification for war in the post-war era has to be, or, or often people try to make it a case of, well, we're if we're fighting Nazis, that's a good thing because it's the only thing that you're allowed to fight. The only the ultimate evil. So if you can fight the ultimate evil, well, then your cause is just. And so, is this just a case of them invoking or trying to look for Nazis under the bed on on both sides here, or is there like is there really something genuine to it? Obviously, many of the boomers and Putin included, being a boomer, they genuinely believe it. But there are also other people involved in the war. I wonder who, you know, do they really believe that? It seems to me to be very far far fetched. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a sort of a long term historical trend to to label everything as either Hitler and of course you go far back enough, and it was people labeling you know the everything the great Satan. I was reading parts of Huntington's Clash of Civilizations earlier, and he was talking about how they called the Western world called Peter the Great Satan, like the great Satan. This is a sort of a long term historical trend to justify, if not war, aggression against rival powers. And so whether or not it's this sort of justification for Russian involvement in, U- in U- Russian involvement in Ukraine really is hinged on uh, Nazism or not is I mean, I don't know. It's it really isn't that Well yeah, we can we no. can look to the fact that I mean there's obviously support for Bandera, who was the World mm. War Two figure, and there is the Azov battalion, but I mean look, that's yeah. You know, in the grand scheme of the current mm-hmm. present Ukrainian military is not like a great, huge well, component of it. That's no, right. No. I mean, if you look at Bandera, they um, didn't the Ukrainian government actually they they sort of venerated him ten or twelve years back, and then they because of the international outcry, they re- completely revoked all honors to Bandera. So there's a sort of they've got a very shaky relationship with their sort of national uh, national socialist past. That they haven't really gotten rid of. Well, they probably want to appeal to folks like Bandera and who support Bandera because they're going to fight the hardest. Because the rest of the Ukrainians are just basically fighting for Western liberalism, uh, which is not something you really want to die for. And I mean, that's indicative of the falling military enlistment rates in the uh, the West. So to have a, a folk hero like Bandera, Bandera is probably a useful adjunct for both sides, for both the Russians and the Ukrainians for different reasons. That's a, a very good point. I was just thinking about Germany. So obviously Germany has similar problems. You often see action against Germany's nationalist movements and so on are, you know, they're attacked on that basis. Even the Alternative for Germany, which is a fairly large party in the German parliament, often gets into some kind of controversy you know, in some way related to uh, Nazism, because like, obviously that is an actual genuine part of German's history. And at some point, if it's part of your history, you do have to reckon with it in some way. And it seems like the, the Ukrainians had some kind of genuine struggle with that, that perhaps has, has mostly been exploited by Putin simply because it's available to exploit. I really see his arguments from history, especially looking back when he's quoting the past. I almost think that he's thinking about a man sitting in his, in his place in 500 years, looking back, uh, saying, you know, did Vladimir Putin leave Russia stronger? Right? Will people think, look back at him and say, he strengthened the, the Russian people, he strengthened the Russian nation. And he referred to the rise and fall of empires later on 
when Tucker asked him about spiritual forces, you know, he said, mm. do you believe that spiritual forces are driving the nations? And he basically said, no, no, he didn't. And I thought initially I thought it was a little bit odd, but then when I thought about it, I thought maybe he's, he doesn't see it as an act of spiritual involvement, but more as a facet of natural law that God has put the, the times and places of empires already in, into place. And so he sees this more as a, uh, in, in a sense, a passive movement where it is sometimes time for an empire to rise and sometimes time for one to fall. And he's looking to make his mark on history using the, those natural mechanisms. Yeah, and, and that, and it's it's an ontological conflict between East and West, and it sort of goes beyond geopolitical rivalry. I mean, essentially, the West embodies the values of rationalism, individualism. Uh, materialism stemming from the Enlightenment and modernity, and uh, Eastern civilizations like Russia just represent, at an ontological level, so at a level of being, they represent spirituality, collectivism, and traditionalism. And so, yeah, in a way, there doesn't have to be an active force of God's will uh, playing out, but at the level of being and at the natural law, things just will play out as as they are embodied. I, I might beg to differ in that there's also an element of great man of history here where, as Dee was said, it's Putin can look back at him, you know, he, he can think of someone 500 years from now and, and, and think, well, what did Vladimir Putin do in my situation? And with the Russians, a sort of strong man, I mean, that's what Stalin was, his name literally meant was, was strong man this sort of paternalist uh, strongman leader ruling Russia and, and commanding Russia, being the will of Russia, that has been something that's defined them as a sort of a monolithic entity as opposed to the West where there are many different minds, many different nations. Well, I, I, I would object to that. I'd say that the West promotes positively a linear progressive view of history and seeks total global dominance through imperialism and cultural hegemony. Whereas, you know, whether there is Dugan's influence in this or not, you know, Russia sort of embodies more of a, a reawakening of the Eurasian consciousness and like a multipolar world uh, order to counter Western universalism. It's, it's the West that become the universal uh, hegemon here, not, not places like Russia. West is best. That's that was always the, the saying. It, but it's been quite successful, though, wouldn't you say, Origin? We have up until this point, marched on as, as a dominant power in the West, as a, you know, a globe-spanning power from the British Empire through to American hegemony, you know, even to this day in its decayed, decrepit state with a senile man as president and $30 trillion of debt, American cultural power and American military power still reigns supreme. And we may say, wow, it looks weak and decrepit, but it certainly hasn't yet collapsed and, and uh, you know, that some people, and I've certainly heard those people theorize that there can be some recovery, there will be some continuation, much like, like uh, the, you know, the Roman Empire went through a couple of, of cycles over well, hundreds, hundreds well, of years where it actually got into a very decrepit state and then grew back again. Yes, well, Putin uh, referred to it in the interview. He said, you're looking at history, the, um, he's, what did he say? The collapse is going to happen much faster. Mm, that, that's a theory, certainly, that the collapse could just happen quickly. Yeah. And okay, I, 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 I think that's a bad gamble uh, for someone to take. That, that some are, okay, well, you know, we're going to gamble everything on America collapsing in the next 20 years. Well, 
it's, when it could be, it could be 200, yes. Well, you're talking about before, like, haven't we done well in the West? Yeah, sure, materially, we've done well. And I think what the learning that the Russians received from the Soviet experiment was the annihilation of tradition and, and the spirit and the spiritual aspects of our existence. And I think we were doing it much in the same way in the West, but we're just doing it as opposed to direct overt pressure we're just doing it as in a form of materialist forms and and nihilism and that's what's going to lead to our collapse and i i I mentioned it before with the uh, falling enlistment rates and there's been like a lot of propaganda drives around britain for instance uh australia has had a few different ad campaigns uh, different ad campaigns in the americas where they've moved away from say diversity and equity inclusion um, adverts to showing, say, white guys, you know, jumping out of airplanes again. And they're trying to appeal to that um, that old spirit and the old way of being in Western times, which was strong, which was virile, which was masculine, which could combat the entire world. And I, I just don't think we have that anymore. And I think it's a necessary component if you want to maintain a, like a global hegemonic empire. And uh, I think it will collapse, and we're probably better to look at a multipolar world order where people can just live in peace and respect their own customs and not have this drive towards having this uh, certain ideology in every single corner of the globe, which is you know pernicious and that just wipes out unique and, and valuable cultures. I've got one last question for you, Kaiden, on this particular mm. subject. And obviously with Putin, and I've seen that his interview is being played in Russian schools, which I think leans into the fact that I believe it was you who said that it was a speech to the Russian people. No, no, it was, uh, it was origin. So in that context, I'd like to think about, or I'd like to ask you about the way that the Russians are currently training their children to think about history is very different to how children in our schools are being trained to think about history. And how do you break out of that? You've obviously been reading a lot of books on civilization, on history. You've referred to a few of them already during our discussion here. Uh, how did you sort of break out of the the mold from how you were taught to think at school? Or is, are things not really as bad at, at, at school as how we tend to talk about them? I didn't have a typical education. I did A-levels um, and we did modules on historiography. So, you know, we picked up on stuff like cyclical view of history, um, Brodel and the Law and Duray, which is the, the Annale school. So we had a bit more broad understanding. But from what I understand of something like NCEA, you're stuck in the paradigm of, you know, learn about Nazi Germany and Maori history and or New Zealand history, Springboks tour. And that's it. You don't really have this sort of uh, multiple layers, sort of four-dimensional view, how different historical theories competing with one another throughout time and their sort of political um, influences and their political impacts. You don't think about that at all in a standard history course, from what I understand, um, from what I was told at the time. And I think the way you break out of that is you simply teach kids a more holistic view of history not just focusing on your own but other people's and the sort of you root it in a sense of who you are as a this is going to sound very liberal as, as someone standing outside of it all and you know at the same time i'm not saying that you you rid yourself of you know your own cultural upbringing and all that but i'm saying that you got to be able to to stand i, I mean was it ranker who said this right you know you got to stand outside of it all 
Well, I'm going to disagree with you there. No, I'm (laughs) disagreeing with you. You you don't want to stand outside of it all. You want to be embodied. You want to live it. You want to be part of a a vibrant and true culture. You're you're talking about like a Cartesian view of world history. It's it's ultimately about seeing things as what they are for what about whether or not you see the truth of it all. Okay. It's not about, you know, your own personal grievances and biases is my point i think that's we're so focused on seeing the political presentism of history rather than seeing it as a again like something more holistic okay fair point like more like an impartial judge rather than yes yeah, yeah. Yes, i think to give a good illustration of this it, it, well from from the speech we're talking about from the interview mm. we're talking about the, the speech inside the interview one of the things putin referenced was poland collaborating with oh, yeah. and no. this is of course funny it's funny, but but you realize there's, there's three different points of view in that particular event. Obviously, you have a German view of what happened with Poland. You have the Polish view of what happened to Poland, and then you have the Russian view of what happened to Poland. And you need to you need to know what what yes. you know, those groups thought in order to make a bit of an impartial judgment on that particular point in history, because you can tell that he, Putin genuinely believes, you know, is. Yes. The, the Russian, he he has embodied the Russian side of that particular story. I, and I, I saw people calling him out for, for lying about Polish collaboration with Germany, but that is absolutely true. The Poles did collaborate with Germany to dismember Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. um, during the Munich Agreement. Yeah. They ended up receiving land, and I think there was what, an end in Slovakia that was a sort of yeah. vassal of the Germans. Yep. And, and that's and then, kind of about now because Poland is a great victim. Yeah, yeah, and then, and but then, obviously, Poland got dismembered. Uh, you know, and the USSR was involved there, and then the USSR got, you know, yeah, they all made one big mess of it. And of course, it's a good event that we can sort of stand outside of a little bit and look look into. And that that is often, but it is often the case in history that you have a number of different perspectives and a number of different people who are trying to hide different parts of history because they're embarrassed by it. Good example from an, an area, you know, a country near here. Um, I'm told um, if you go to Japan, for instance, you get some very interesting views of their history there. I was in Croatia a few years ago, and again, you get their history from you know the year '95 from the Croatian point of view. But you've got to take it as it is. It's their, <laughs> it's their history they experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you've just joined us, by the way, and you're confused as to what we're talking about. Uh, you're listening to the dialogue on RCR with Dewa de Boer, where we explore politics, power, and culture. Having a discussion here, uh, a little virtual fireside chat with Kaiden and Origin about the interview that Tucker Carlson did with Vladimir Putin. Uh, we've just discussed, gone over the different facets to the interview, especially the historical angles and, and very much the animating spirit as to uh, the animating spirit of Putin's rationales. I'd like to shift the conversation over just a little bit in this la- latter half to his discussion of trade and economics. Uh, obviously, that was a big part of the interview. Tucker asked a lot about the power of the US dollar, uh, how Russia's trade has changed and how he believed it would affect uh, the rise of China. Because that seems to very much be, if you're trying to understand US foreign policy, it sort of seemed to be to try to contain China. And they thought they would break up Russia to contain China. And that that's fallen apart completely, obviously. And that may very well affect New Zealand in the future because we have 
China is our biggest trading partner, but America and Australia are, are our closest allies. So this creates an interesting geopolitical situation for New Zealand. Would you like to give us some of your, your thoughts and background on that, Kaiden? Well, uh, it's, it's interesting because this whole war has been given countries like China and Russia opportunities to insulate themselves from a what is essentially a failing Western financial system. It's a sort of Keynesian model run wild. And that's not to say that Russia and China don't suffer from similar problems. If you look at China's uh, economy, you know you had the evergreen crisis a few years ago that they managed to contain, but whether or not they can do in the future, it's yet to be seen. But how this affects us, I mean, you know, China trying to insulate themselves has led to some interesting diplomatic issues like I don't know if it's diplomatic, political issues where they, for instance, have been stealing our kiwi fruit and planted it in China in order to grow themselves in crops. I don't know if it's a thing where they're going to sell it onto the international market and kind of cut us out, but it do- does seem like a lot of the goods that they would want, they're starting to produce themselves. And of course, this comes into play with the US trade war of recent. You know, There's a chip ban ongoing right now where in order to try and curb the development and growth of the AI industry in, in China, the Americans have effectively banned NVIDIA and AMD from selling chips there. So they're having to develop rapidly their own domestic market. In fact, that might end up being one of the largest industries for China in terms of growth compared to all the rest. So they're insulating themselves against us, uh, mainly due to this war in, in, in Ukraine, uh, us as in the West, not New Zealand specifically. And other nations, of course, following suit, you know, at least putting their hand up with interest in joining the BRICS. Um, I guess you could consider them the sort of EEC of the third world. So, yeah, I'll just pass it on to you. Thank you for a, a very brief overview there. Is there anything, Origin, that you'd like to add to, add to uh, a, an overview of the economic situation that you see developing out of this war? Well, the the BRICS situation can go only go up for them, really. I mean, more and more members are joining. Uh, I think it was mentioned in the the Putin interview. They was talking about thirty three trillion dollars worth of American debt, and like Kaiden says, you know, we have our common tra- well, common in terms of our heritage trading partners, Australia and America, and the United Kingdom. Uh, it's, it sort of strikes me is foolish almost you know having given away like the common market was it was it called the common market the the trade we had with I, uh, England I think it was them joining the common market in the in the European Union at the time that's right that the and I can't remember what we called our agreements with them but obviously they had the commonwealth agreements that were that that had to be dismantled yeah in order for them to join the European market and it's interesting, it seems that despite the amount of uh, money that we make from China, despite them ripping off our agricultural products, uh, we still seem to side with other Anglosphere countries when it's about like, you know, other geopolitical issues, which I think is quite interesting, given that you think we'd have more of a sort of a, an economic vested interest in in China. So is there something else that's more important to the sort of national psyche or the political elites other than just mere money? Yeah, I think I was talking before about the power that America still has uh, around the world. We're obviously still very much part of the American influence. And that's still very meaningful in terms of the access that you have to many goods 
as you know the US shows that it's more than willing to engage in trade wars. America famously is probably the worst trading partner to have just because of how they'll bully you into into cooperating. So for us it's it's I think more so the political connections, even though our trade with the United States is not particularly particularly high. All, all of these oh, no. all these global organizations, all these global organizations are run out of America. Still a very, very powerful country, the most powerful for a reason. And there's a there's also the concern that the American sort of weaponization of their dollar with the joining of all these countries to BRICS, if they establish a common currency, you know, these are countries with manufacturing abilities that we don't have anymore in New Zealand. Certainly the Western world has industrialized in favor of the service economy, which is a you know a bubble. Many commentators mm-hmm. have been pointing at that. These manufacturing companies having a common currency as an alternative to their own bilateral trade agreements where they, they use their own currency. That is a that's a threat to us because we're a benefactor of the US dollar being a reserve currency in reality. Mm-hmm. I and sometimes people will say, Oh, we need to get with bricks. You know, America is going to collapse, the American dollar is going to hyperinflate away, the SWIFT system is going to collapse, whatever. You know, we need to get cozy with bricks. But I mean, I don't see any rush to make any any rash decisions, and I think a lot of these things are actually more robust than they look. But you you see some real risks there for us. I I don't see it as an immediate risk, although there's certainly the tendency towards yeah pushing towards alternatives to the U.S. dollar. I mean, this is one of the reasons Gaddafi got to- toppled, right? Is he was willing to trade oil for gold. Uh, was it like he was willing to trade goods for oil, something around that, but yeah. essentially to um, circumvent u- the use of the US dollar. And of course, if other countries were to follow suit, I mean, people don't realize what the US dollar represents. It represents the extraction of purchasing power from other countries in order to fuel the American, just their insane deficits, essentially. You know, the yeah, reason not- people can buy these things on their credit card is because of the US dollar. Yeah, no other country in the world has a, a $33 trillion debt, nor would it be possible. No. Uh, only America can do it, and they can still survive because of the, the U.S. dollar. And as uh, it's sometimes pointed out, you know, the U.S. dollar, what's the U.S. dollar backed by? We'll say, well, the U.S. dollar is just paper. It's not backed by anything. Well, the, the U.S. dollar is backed by American warships and American yeah. fighter jets. Yeah, yeah. 12 nuclear aircraft carriers <laughs> that can be projected around the world. Yeah. Now, a few years ago, and it has been quite a few years, Winston Peters argued for a free trade deal with Russia. That's obviously fallen much by the wayside. Uh, Such an idea couldn't even be resurrected today. But say after this this interview, the negotiations open up again between Russia and Ukraine in in the near future and there's some kind of peace deal. Do we see a de-escalation or do we see an acceleration of the current situation? You know, is there is is someone actually going to to back down? Is it a game of chicken? Is someone going to blink first? Well, in well, terms of forming a trade deal with Russia, yeah. Well, in terms of, for instance, if they were to renormalize, uh, and if there was to be a peace deal, then would there be things like you know, it would become after a few years it would become palatable to talk about trade with Russia and so on, mm-hmm. or. Or is this split going to accelerate? Do relations normalize, or do they do they split irrevocably? Do they won't? Nothing. Nothing can be done to put this going right back to the beginning, where I was referring to Putin's uh, two hemispheres of the brain being split. You know, do they come back together? Do we get a a, a bipolar world that gets along, or is it a uh, a permanently split world where we are stuck on either side? It will be irrevocable if Russia wins and beats Ukraine. And gets terms that are favourable to them. 
if Russia loses, it will probably be split up, which I think has been the ultimate goal from the West. They wanted to split it up and after the fall of uh, 91, and they still have designs on doing that. And that probably means that they'd be more open. Whatever's left of Russia would be rather open to um, any form of trade deal because it would be essentially a vassal of the United States. Mm-hmm. And Kaiden, what do you see? Any, you know, we're stuck with the United States or is something, you know, is something else in our future possible? Well, that's all dependent on what regime will be in place in the United States after the war concludes. Um, if it's a, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't promise anything, but for say Trump, there might be, it might be a bit more amicable towards lowering trade barriers with Russia. But on the other hand, the election there could be fortified. Something could happen, and you see it continue. You, you see the uh, the war in Ukraine, or you see our sort of cold war that's brewing escalate, and relations continue to break down. More uh, embargoes in place, uh, more tariffs. So, uh, I mean, I I won't I won't bet on anything there. All right, and do either of you see New Zealand picking up a more independent path, trying to? Some people have argued for a much more independent New Zealand foreign policy. Personally, I don't see it. I, I think we are we are the West. We are yep. we are with America, mm-hmm. however it goes. But yeah, some members of the audience might be interested in in some thoughts on whether it would be possible for or some you know for for New Zealand to go take a different path. Well, um, and as long the- as our elites are. Uh- pro-Western, um, as long as our political establishment is pro-West, signed up with the United Nations and different uh, American-led you know, led organizations, international organizations, we're, we're going to stick with them, even if that's to our detriment in the long term. I think if New Zealand would pursue its own more independent policy, yeah, we might have a, we might have a brighter future, but that's not something that's being pursued right now. It's kind of off the table. Yeah, the last time we tried to adopt a different foreign policy, well, not foreign policy, but different policy, was the uh, the the nuclear ships fiasco, and we got cut out of a lot of deals from the United States. So it's been a severe lesson for us, and we've been backtracking that faux pas ever since the 1980s. And it's the liberalism will just march on, the Western hegemony will just march on, and uh, we'll consume more, get lots of cheap goods. That's about some of it. Yeah, and, and um, on, on this subject of trade, I think the last point that I would like to make with regards to China is that China has actually shown itself to be fairly reluctant to make you know losses at the expense of, of Russia. They're friends, but in, only in terms of what China gets out of it. As long as it's still a good deal for China, they will maintain good relations with Russia. They'll maintain good relations with New Zealand and anyone else in between, but if it's something that would jeopardize their trade with New Zealand, they, they you know, and, and other countries here, Australia, the rest of the Pacific, uh, they seem to prize that very highly. Uh, so I do not see a case where Russia, uh, sorry, where, where China sees you know, more war as being favorable to it at this point. Well, it's never really, you know, sought war internationally. I mean, there's, um, there was a couple of invasions of Vietnam after, after the Vietnam War, and obviously, there's um, sort of neo-colonialism through Tibet, but they don't really seem to project it uh, war further out from their own borders. 
Yeah, their form of uh, of imperialism is mainly economic, which is uh, essentially build dockyards in Africa and expect and put the debt on them. Uh, and and this is a very British form of imperialism. The British did did this with the Suez Canal, 150 years ago, 160 mm-hmm. years ago, and the Chinese have, have tried to perfect that. And that's how they're projecting power instead of using military power, which is quite quite smart. Yeah, it's a very expensive. cheap way. Yeah, it's expensive to run a military. Yes, <laughs> yes, this is, this is the case. My final point here is about, I guess, the New Zealand connection to this, because you know we've talked for the better part of an hour about the Ukraine war on the other side of the world, about Russia, which is. You know, Russia is still quite far away from from where we are. Certainly, wedged. You know, China is wedged very firmly between Russia and New Zealand. We have no real trade with Russia at the moment, and especially in the wake of the Ukraine war, it's basically decreased. But we have sent a fair bit of money to the Ukraine war. We definitely New Zealand as a country is very much behind Ukraine in this war. Several of our soldiers have gone over to fight there as volunteers but they obviously haven't been stopped by the government. They wouldn't face any kind of sanction for doing so. And unfortunately, two of them have been killed. In uh, August 2022, Corporal Dominic Abelin was killed in Ukraine. And again, uh, roughly six months, a bit more than six months later, in April uh, 2023, Kane Tetai was also killed in combat the thing that shocked me, though, was that the New Zealand government refused to pay for, you know, bringing their bodies back to New Zealand. Basically, saying you went over there to fight some war that was none of our business, even though we're technically supporting one side. And I think that was quite a, a slap in the face to the families of those soldiers who went yeah. there. Yeah, and I mean, whether you're on the Russian side or the Ukrainian side men going off and of their own volition to fight for a cause there's something noble about that and it was an ignoble way to be treated by the New Zealand government for those two men I believe their families did raise the money privately to have their bodies brought back and, and buried in New Zealand but yeah, something something that it has been pointed out how much the Labour Party despised the armed forces in a sense and, and gutted them. Um, I had family members in the army and so on, and, and they, yeah, it was insanely demoralizing for them to be involved in all of the COVID stuff. But on top of that, it was very, yeah, the the state that our our army is in is a terrible state. Or certainly, we couldn't fight a war. But even our men in the army who go out to fight a war of their own choosing are basically treated as if they were trash and uh, just very very sad for me to see to see that because fighting is at least historically we've always viewed fighting as being a, a noble thing for men to pursue and now it's seen as a, a silly thing and uh, i think that's it's it's probably not good for us as a civilization well, it's a silly thing if you're uh, in a culture of inwards-looking people. If you're only if your reference is yourself and your narcissistic black mirror universe of staring into cell phones, then you're sure going away somewhere and fighting and being uncomfortable would be a very silly thing to do. But you know, obviously, those men were thought they were fighting for something greater than themselves, and they there's something noble about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just because I wouldn't go and fight for Global Homo in defending some, you know, who who's defending what in Europe? They're looking at their at their policy 
the continent's falling apart, their borders are open, they're burning massive amounts of money, and their cultural decay is 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 not something I would want to fight for. But I can absolutely respect those who do. I can respect those who believe they have something worth fighting for. And I would love to have something worth fighting for. And that's that's really what you want. You want to have a country worth fighting for. You want to have a cause worth fighting for. And we're absolutely, uh, I want to say that you know, we should always respect uh, these men who are willing to fight for us. Yeah, and make Aotearoa great again. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble with the, uh, the audience who are going to send their feedback. Let me know what you thought of this uh, small panel of my friends and you know, the chat that we've had here. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why I started Right Minds in uh, 2016 was to have these kinds of discussions. Usually we have them less out in the open, like we have just had them on the radio here. That's the kind of thing that is good for young men to have, uh, have somewhere to talk about history, have somewhere to talk about politics, and uh, we love to facilitate that. So thank you for joining me, Kaiden and Origin. Thank you, Diwa, and thank you to the Reality Check Radio listeners. I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, thank you. It's been a privilege. Hope you enjoyed it. We will take a quick break and we will be back shortly. Thank you very much. Taking part in conversations and discussions to help find resolutions for the issues of today. This is The Dialogue with Dewa DeBoer. Welcome back. One of my friends in our panel slash fireside chat just now was talking about the army recruitment problems around the Western world. He mentioned the UK and the US especially are struggling And they have started to release non-woke ads to try to appeal to young white men. Diversity suddenly seems unimportant in the face of a hypothetical war with Russia. But the question remains. In times past, men would not have hesitated to line up and fight for king and country. There's a poem by 19th century poet Lord Macaulay that comes to mind. In the lays of ancient Rome, there is a poem by the name of Horatius. It recounts a time when ancient Rome was betrayed and under siege. The traitor Sextus and his army were about to take the city, and all hope was lost. Only one man was willing to stand up and possibly die for his land. And I quote, But the consul's brow was sad, and the consul's speech was low, and darkly looked yet the wall, and darkly at the foe. Their van will be upon us before the bridge goes down, and if they once may win the bridge, what hope to save the town? Then out spake brave Horatius, the captain of the gate. To every man upon this earth, death cometh soon or late, and how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? And for the tender mother who dandled him to rest, and for the wife who nurses his baby at her breast? and for the holy maidens who feed the eternal flame to save them from false sextus that wrought the deed of shame. Hew down the bridge, Sir Consul, with all the speed ye may. I, with two more to help me, will hold the foe in play. In yon straight path a thousand may well be stopped by three. Now who will stand on either side and keep the bridge with me? End quote. Those were some of the 
middle sections of this very long poem, but it recounts the story of the one brave man and his two friends that held a bridge alone against the invading army. The bridge was cut down and they saved the city. Lord Macaulay, who wrote the poem, was a man of the British Empire. He transposed his own spirit onto that of the pagan Roman. And if I specifically will read half a verse again, How can a man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? It is in this that the English schoolchild who learned this poem and recited it could imagine themselves. They would die for the tombs of their forebears, the churches in their villages, the cathedrals in their cities. But what does this poem say to the modern man? What would people today want to die for in a modern progressive democracy? And so there will be no war with Russia, for there are not enough of those who care to die, not even faced with the bleak prospect of conscription. War with Russia is now certainly impossible for the Western world. Before we get to the final closing to end this show, there is another piece of music I have for you. The Adagio of Spartacus and Phrygia. Armenian composer Aram Kachakurian was born in the Russian Empire in 1903 and grew up in the Soviet Union. He was denounced for a time by the Department of Agitation and Propaganda, Agiprop, due to his music being too complex for common tastes. I found this piece almost by accident when I was looking for something for Valentine's Day when this show was originally scheduled to air. I thought about removing it from my notes, but it had a little bit of everything. War, romance, slaves, gladiators, Rome, the Soviet Union. While the romantic subject of doomed runaway slaves and gladiators who would ultimately be executed by the Roman Empire might not be for everyone, after listening to it, I just had to include it in the show. Here it is, performed by the University of North Carolina Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Tonu Kalam, the Adagio of Spartacus and Phrygia. Welcome back to this final segment. We will be wrapping up very, very shortly, uh, but I have very much enjoyed hosting the show this morning. I hope you have enjoyed listening to it. I'm repeating myself now, but it really is a great honor and a privilege to be here on Reality Check Radio. This week in New Zealand history... On the 17th of February, 1873, Aucklanders awoke to the news that the Russian ironclad cruiser Kaskowiski had entered the Waitemata Harbour undetected and landed troops in the city. They seized our gold reserves. They took our mayor, Philip Phillips, hostage. The Russian invasion of New Zealand had begun. Wait, wait. Stop. Stop the press. Uh, that was fake news. The story, or satire, by Daily Southern Cross editor David Lucky, that confirmed the worst fears of some New Zealanders at a low point in Anglo-Russian relations after the Crimean War. 
don't believe everything you read in the newspaper. That's it for this week. Next week, my wife Amy will join us for the reading out of the mailbag. So one final reminder that you can be part of the dialogue if you send in your feedback, thoughts, and questions. If it's good, Amy will read it out and I will respond to it. There will be more interviews, more history, more culture, and more of the same if you like the show and more of something different if you have constructive criticism. Now, as promised, we will conclude the show with a short organ piece by Johann Sebastian Bach, the greatest musician and composer who ever lived. The piece is for organ, Kairi Hot Vader in Ewigkeit, God Father in Eternity. It's played here on the organ of the Freiburger Dom St. Marien in Freiburg, Germany, for the All of Bach project. I sincerely hope you enjoyed the show, and we will be back next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Dialogue with Dewa de Boer. You can catch the Dialogue replays on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays.